And that's another way of looking at where we're at at the moment in our sense of calling to sacred activism. That we each have a gift to bring to this current crisis. We're each born with this gift that the world is waiting for, unique gift, which we feel when we're connected to our source. This is where sacred activism comes in. And that we're being called to, to not under, underestimate what we're capable of doing, just like that butterfly's wing, you know, just a smile in the street. My tiny things can affect the outcome of the whole. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always beautiful to be with you again. Well, I have another woman in to introduce you to that I'm madly in love with today. <laughs> I've been reading up all about Gillian, Dr. Gillian Ross. Welcome to the show. <laughs> She's one of the, for those people listening, she put her hand up to her because it's on audio as well as video platforms. But uh, Dr. Gillian is one of the Australian speakers for the Higher Self Expo. I found you at the Yes And conference yes. amongst a whole mess of, um, when I say mess, a whole group of these beautiful young spiritual teachers. And there you were a little bit older. And I'm thinking, oh, she's hanging out with the young ones. What does this woman have to say? <laughs> substantially older I might add <laughs> <laughs> and I just listened to you and I'm like oh my god I just was so blown away by your articulous you know the way you articulate and your story and oh anyway you're living outside of Sydney on country shall we honor that absolutely darling yes I'd love to honor the uh, the ancestral custodians of this uh, amazing land on which I'm very privileged to be living. I actually, it is adjacent to the uh, uh, sacred site, the Nimbin Rocks, which was an ancient initiation site. Um, so I feel enormously privileged, but also very welcome here by the Bundjalung Nation peoples since I arrived. So that's felt really nice. Yeah. Oh, so you're right up uh, there near Nimbin, are you? Of the land. Yeah. yeah, one of the ancestors of the land, and thank you. Uh, so you're right up the top there, right up the top of New South Wales. Yes, northern New South Wales, yeah, Bundjalung country, yeah. Such a beautiful part of the planet, it honestly. It's more the heart chakra of the planet, you know. It's just sort of special energy in this whole area, which is a Bundjalung nation area, actually, that whole area, yeah. We're taking in Byron Bay, of course, the famous Byron yeah. Mm. Oh, I love it up there. I'm totally going to go and live up there one day. But for those people who uh, don't know about Gillian, I'm going to read your bio and we're going to find out a little bit more about you. And your topic for the Higher Self Expo is evolutionary mysticism and the emergence of the planetary mind. Oh, my God, just the title is fantastic. Yeah. Born in England in the 40s, Gillian was very much a child of the Western mind growing up in its intellectual traditions and painfully sharing its late 20th century crisis of meaning. After a lifetime's journey embracing many different worldviews, Gillian finds it difficult to put a label on her spiritual perspective. If pressed, you say, 
you would describe yourself as a Christian Buddhist yogi and a mystic with a penchant for Taoism. <laughs> I wrote that a while ago, Karen. I would now say that I'm an evolutionary mystic. Rather sums it up than saying all of that. <laughs> a universal <laughs> mystic. <laughs> I like that, an evolutionary mystic. Perfect. Over the last 10 years, you've been happy to call yourself a spiritual evolutionary, it says here too. Your Western education gave you honours, a degree, honours science degree, a master's degree in philosophy and a doctorate in behavioural science. Hence why I asked you to speak at the Higher Self Expo because we're marrying science and spirituality and uh, a doctorate in behaviour. But in your view, it left you spiritually and emotionally bereft. (laughs) In your late 30s, You gave up city life and the academic career in order to give more time to your three young sons and pursue your deepening interest in subtle energy and mysticism. Gillian trained as a shiatsu massage practitioner as well as a yoga teacher and began to explore alternative lifestyles, studying Eastern and Western spiritual philosophies. In the early 90s, you began making relaxation and yoga tapes through the ABC and published your first book. So the ABC for people listening and watching is the Australian Broadcasting Commission, not the American book, but much the same. It is mainstream media. So it's beautiful that you've been out there on mainstream media. I just love that, you know, sharing your wisdom. Uh, And your first book was In Search for the Pearl, The Personal Exploration of Science and Mysticism. Your second book is, Is There Life Before Death? Reflections on a Spiritual Awakening, also published by the ABC. And in 2010, you published Psyche Yearnings. Is that right? Psyche Psyche's Yearning. Psyche. Based on the, around the, the myth of Psyche and Eros. Yes. Psyche's uh-huh. book. Radical yeah. perspective on self-transformation. In the late 80s, you became a student of the Clare Vision School, founded by in Australia by Dr. Samuel Sagan in 1987. Gillian lives on a 40-acre retreat in northern New South Wales and delights in sharing with others some of the philosophies and practices which helped you so profoundly in your journey out of spiritual bleakness and into lasting sense of peace, joy and well-being. You can find more about Dr. Gillian Ross at drgillianross.com. Amazing journey. Well, darling, I might just, I do want to mention that the, the fourth book called Consciousness versus Catastrophe. Oh, I haven't got that here. Consciousness versus human evolution. Consciousness versus Catastrophe. That's the one that seems to have resonated a lot with people. Reflections on the next stage of human evolution, which is more or less what I'm going to be talking about at your expo, you know, this next stage. Right. Yeah, so the, the book, is, and the book is, you could call it an introduction to evolutionary mysticism as well. Yeah. It puts the reader into contact with a lot of, of, of of writers and and um, mystics you know who are talking about all of this now yeah is that the book that you discuss with rick on his show yes put her at the gas pump so jillian was just telling me that she was chatting with rick how long ago was that well i thought it was just a year ago but actually it's two years ago september 2019 okay terrifyingly quickly especially when you're my age i don't know (laughs) I don't know how old you are. How old are you, Julie? I'm 81. Oh, wow. I thought you were in your early 70s. Oh, you're a darling. (laughs) 
Oh, wow. Well, it's so beautiful to talk to someone with such rich history. You know, you've seen you've seen a lot in this world. You've seen the evolution of consciousness. That's the thing I'm speaking so often. I've been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, I've got a couple of years, I'm a couple of years younger than you, but I've seen this evolution and it's so beautiful to see it. And you would have seen more of it. Do you want to go through a little bit of your journey and how you've seen the world change, what you've discovered? Well, as I said to you earlier, I, I like to, I'm, I'm, um, I mean, I'm English, you know, a bit inhibited about calling, talking about yourself and your history and stuff like that. And especially, you know, when you sort of grow out of it all and you feel, I don't even know that person anymore. But anyway, but, but I do tell my story in two of my books because I feel it resonates with people personally, but it also, it's sort of, it, my journey and a lot of journeying people that they have experiencing now resonates or aligns with the story of Western culture. Because at one time we as a culture, you know, and which of course is now global culture, um, did have a connection with the sacredness of the land, did feel that spiritual connection, did have a heart-centered connection with it all. Um, and then, of course, you know, we took off and um, institutional religion came in, Christianity came in, separated us from all of that. God is up there, you know, not down here and, and introduced heaven and hell, and all of that sort of thing. We went into a sort of transcendentalism where we had to escape from all of this and look to heaven beyond. Um, but now we're coming back to that reconnection. And that was, oh, and in fact, and then we moved into the modern era where so many of us are just, you know, indifferent to religion. Um, yeah. Oh. Agnostic, you know just just oh. lost any sort of sense of connection either transcendent or imminent or imminent you know yeah uh, I want to interject here because when I was reading your story this morning I really resonated with, with when you said that you were hanging out with intellectuals yes, and to the yes. intellectual mind any sort of mysticism or religion was considered yes. um it's sort of like illiterate almost. It's like you're stupid if you believe in that stuff. Oh, absolutely, darling, because I was I was at a grammar school in, in Lincolnshire, Northern England, and I was a big fish in a little pond, you know. I mean, I got a big scholarship and I always did well sports-wise and intellectually and so on. But I have this, this really passionate uh, interest in religion and, and I felt a, a very intimate connection with Christ from a very early age. I used to go to church on my own. My family weren't particularly religious. I used to teach myself songs on the piano and sing them. You know, I did. Christ was with me you know and then I started to have doubts through my physics teacher my science in my teenage years went to University College London which is called the the godless institution of Gower Street in London because the psychology professor there was an atheist and the philosophy professor there was an atheist AJS and and I hung out with postgraduate psychology students from an early time and um, they just made me feel that if I mentioned anything about religion or expressed any interest in Jung, never mind God, I was coming over as emotionally um, emotionally unstable and stupid, you know? And, and as a country bumpkin, I was trying very hard to be neither of those. So, you know, I kept my gob shut <laughs> and gradually took on their way of looking at things, which, which, is, which was to be terribly clever and rational, you know? <laughs> And I struggled with that for another 20 years until I realized it was doing nothing for me and reconnect and, and went to yoga classes. And then, woo, the world started opening up again. It was just, you, know, you say, you know, and I've, I've got to say, I do know, like I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where intellect is so honored, you know, and uh, 
And I remember I read the book by James Redfield. What was it called? Oh, back? yes. I what can't was remember. The first yeah. book? Because yeah. it kind of yeah. went, a, it bit, went a bit viral, didn't it, that book? And everyone was reading it and the mainstream media were talking about it. And a friend of mine had said that how how badly written, there was so much grammar mistakes and so many spellings. And that's all she could say about the book. And I remember thinking, oh, I didn't see any of that. I actually no. was into the like into the wisdom in the book. And she was saying how badly written it was. And that's the sort of that's the sort of world I grew up in too, just like being made stupid to believe in anything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? And that's definitely changing. I give another lovely little anecdote. When I went out into the my second journey into the outback to meditate, actually, I love the Australian outlook. We're so blessed to have this this um uh you know uh, pristine pristine spiritual environment there not so pristine anymore but pretty pristine if you find the right place anyway I was in a tent in the middle of a national park somewhere and these two rangers came in to, and, and were quite concerned because they thought I might be lying dead there or something and they popped their head in I was lying semi-naked so I was quickly coming so what you, oh, I'm here to meditate all oh, right okay how nice you know went off that was in the late 90s and just surprised me that was already quite an accepted thing to do. You know, if you'd done that in the 70s or 80s, you'd probably been counted after a mental home or something. <laughs> You're not safe. <laughs> but so meditation has become such a buzzword, which is delightful because it wasn't, you know, in the early 90s or 80s or when I started in the early 80s, late 70s, not so much. Yeah, yeah meditation's part of the mainstream now, which is yeah. which yeah. is part of this evolutionary uh, cycle that I think you're witnessing as... Exactly, exactly, our awakening, yeah. And Buddhism has been enormously valuable in that because, you know, people respect Buddhism and mindfulness Buddhism, is, uh, mindfulness meditation has really been drawn from the Buddhist tradition. I mean, I do get a bit cross, I have to say, although I'm letting go of that, um, that, you know, how, how secular mindfulness meditation has become. Because what I practice is mystic meditation. Meditation to me is all about connecting with the divine, connecting with your inner divinity through the heart and through the light above. And, um, yes, I, I know a lot of people complain about people just, you know, do yoga because it's fashionable and they want to wear their yoga pants and they meditate because it's fashionable. But we've got to start somewhere. Exactly, darling. You know, we've got to start somewhere. Make it fashionable, make it trendy, and yes. then let them let them sort of see it from that perspective. But then when they go through their life crises, they get divorced, they get sick. What does um, Patria King sure. say? Do you know Patria King? Sure. But I do think that the, the new story of evolutionary mysticism, which we may talk about in our conversation, is a story, a new story that is bringing people more into, you know, that, that mysticism that is then enriches their meditation practice. Do you see Absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. usually they don't go there until some crisis hits their life. And uh, when the crisis, when the shift hits the fan, then they sort of rely on that uh, meditation practice or yoga press practice to bring them deeper into the mystical but world. also the point is darling the planets hit you know hit the iceberg the, the, the planet I know. The has hit the, hit the fan age crisis the shit has hit the fan whatever expression you like to use shift so humankind is going through its middle because you see i've described my my conversion back to spirituality as being my midlife crisis really mm -hmm. and, and i said that, you know western cultures Global culture has hit a midlife crisis now. You know, it has to, it has to go through a rite of passage into a whole new way of living and being. Otherwise, we're extinct. It's that critical. We're at a crossroad. Yeah. Someone described it as we're at a crossroad. If we go one way, we'll go to hell on earth. If we go another way, we'll go to heaven on earth. Mm. It's that 
critical right now in our lifetime. Yeah, we are absolutely at a choice point, a mm. uh, decision, a cross in the road. Yeah, what are you going to choose? Yeah. So please go on. Tell me more about, tell me more about um, your passion with the evolutionary mysticism. Well, so after this, you know, very spiritually aware childhood, but a very naive one, I suppose, in a way, and then going through that period of really, really I remember one of my tutors at university saying the only thing, the only viable, the only respectable position to take is agnosticism. You don't know, you know, there could be a God, there might not be a God. And I thought that was totally clever. So I then called myself an agnostic, of course, but, you know, very passionless. Um, and... Uh, Actually, I love Jung on that again, actually, because he was asked, do you believe in God? He said, I don't believe I know, you know, and that's where we've got to move. And that's what I mean by mysticism more than even spirituality, because spirituality has become a bit of a buzzword in that, you know, it means you're not part of a religious institution, but you still believe in God and, you know, you like to pray or whatever. Mysticism is more profound than that. It's, it's, it's awakening what I consider to be our birthright, each of us, as a mystic, that is, is with an ability to connect directly to the divine. Just realized I haven't phoned off, turned off my phone, darling, which I'm going to do now. Here we go, gone. Um, so, so where was I? So yes, so I went into this period of so-called agnosticism, but my PhD was all about religious beliefs. And I interviewed ex-Catholic dropouts to see why they'd rejected God. And I then compared their with personalities and experience and, and perceptions with those who had converted to Catholicism from a non-religious background. They somehow found, you know, I could, chose Catholicism because it's a more well-defined religious tradition in our culture. It's not a sort of airy-fairy as the Church of England or whatever. It ha and it has a very rich lit liturgical ritual tradition. So I was very moved by some of the converts I spoke to who had no emotional reason to convert to Catholicism. It wasn't as though they were falling about emotionally and needing a father figure or a mummy or, or whatever some of the others were, uh, some of them which had a really, really love-deprived childhood and one could understand why they turned to Mary, the mother of God and God the Father and so on. But some of them were just, just felt, felt the Eucharist, felt the presence of Christ in that, in that ritual and who quite clearly had transformed their lives through that conversion, rather like a near-death experience or something like that, you know. And I thought, gosh, that reminds me of something. I'm missing something here. And also I was the mother of three young boys and I recognized that I was getting too tired and not giving enough to them. I was, you know, binging on alcohol from time to time. I was smoking, I was, I was taking Valium when I couldn't sleep. And I just recognized, you know, I was falling, something was terribly wrong. I was in the wrong groove, you know. I was an academic, I was living in the city, I was trying to be a, a, a perfect super mother and a super academic, super teacher. And um, my husband was away a lot, so I was more or less a single parent as well, because he was a journalist who went off overseas a lot. Um, and I just realized I had to do something. So I went, started going to yoga classes. And I had this wonderful experience of, in the relaxation practice at the end of the class called Yoga Nidra. I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard by now of Yoga Nidra because it's again become sort of mainstream. And you, you, a voice with voice guidance, which is important, you surrender to the voice and work your awareness, your consciousness through your body a little bit at a time, letting go of tension, letting go of tension. And you go ideally into this lovely floaty space where you feel yourself as a body of energy or a body of light. You know, I began to feel that. 
And um, this was so gorgeous, I decided to train as a yoga teacher. Gosh, I'm going to learn more about this and, and share it with others. So that was the next step in my journey. Started that, and then I realized I had to, that academic life just wasn't suiting me. It was always making me tense. And, and I was teaching what other people told me to teach rather than teaching what I felt or believed. And um, so I left academic life. I left my marriage and I left city life, all sort of almost in one go as an inspiration. And I moved to the Blue Mountains with my two dogs, two cats, three boys, and started a whole new life. We had a goat, we had hens, we had a veggie garden. And I started to write what, what I was learning about the evolution of consciousness. I was reading Ken Wilbur, tuning into uh, people like Jean Houston, Matthew Fox, Joseph Campbell on mythology, all beautiful stuff that had been completely deprived of half my life, you know, and I just felt, gosh, I'd come back to where I'm meant to be. And I started actually taking classes informally, talking about the evolution of consciousness and these lovely writings. And, um, and then one of my, and I was doing yoga classes, of course, and shiatsu to earn a very modest living. I was living on the poverty line, truly. Although I did have the money to buy a house, which was lovely. We had this gorgeous bush home. I felt so grateful for that, so great. And truly, Karen, when I made that step and went into a different way of living, I have never looked back. Wow. Look back. I've never needed a drink. I've never needed Valium. I've never needed a cigarette. I was just right there like a fish being flung back into the ocean. <laughs> Beautiful. Just wonderful. And, and the love I felt for my children and the delight they all were for me, for me growing up and so on. But yoga nidra helped a lot. I do yoga nidra every single day. I've got a I've got a fun story about yoga nidra. I have a girlfriend who's very uh, busy in her mind and in her body, very busy, incredibly creative, and she's been doing yoga all her life. I suppose she, you know she's very spiritual, but she's one of those people that always said to me, "Oh, I wish I had that access that you have, that third eye access." You know, I wish, I wish, I wish. Anyway, a mutual friend of ours died few years yeah. back and she said that in her yoga class she loved the exercises but the yoga nidra at the end was always like oh waste of time she always felt like it was a waste of time right this was this was her attitude and then one day she's doing her yoga class and all she could think about was I can't wait to the end I can't wait to the end where we do the relaxation the yoga nidra I can't wait and so that comes and she relaxes and our dead friend appears in her third eye Oh, and she says, yeah. and we all went to see John of God together, the three of us. So we all used to have spiritual conversation about all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, Marie, our dead friend, said to her, you know how easy it is to get to heaven? Let me show you how easy it is to get to heaven. And she reaches her hand out. And my friend, her name's Karen as well, in her yoga nitra, sort of puts her, extends her etheric hand up and grabs Marie. And she pulls her up and she finds herself in this bliss wow just like in this heavenly experience as she's lying on the floor in the yoga studio just yeah. completely like she's in experiencing that energy of heaven yeah. and I'm yeah. telling the story and I'm like you know wow <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 oh it's a very powerful practice and for people who find sitting, sitting, meditating, you know, oh, start to get backache or oh, what am I doing here? It's a, 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 to begin by doing yoga nidra and getting that feel of being more, you know, less physical and more etheric or ethereal uh, is a lovely way of getting into then the desire to sit up and, and have a, a more awake practice because mm -hmm. they are very different, lying down practice and sitting practice, I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in my experience anyway, very different experiences. 
Um, in that yoga nidra, you're on that threshold between waking and sleeping. Right. So it's a precious threshold, the hypnagogic stage, you know. Mm -hmm. That's why in yoga nidra, the, the resolution you make when you go into it, when you come out of it, is so powerful because it's like a post-hypnotic suggestion. Mm -hmm. You're very transforming, especially if you stick to the same one for a while. Yeah. Eventuates. But I totally but, agree with you when you say we're all turning into mystics. You know, a mystic is no longer a special person like everyone is becoming the mystic and everyone is donning the vibration in a waking state of the yoga nidra vibration you know to be waking meditation to be always having that access to subtle dimensions or higher dimensions well darling i mean i live in a bubble a bit around that and i suspect you do because there are an awful lot of people out there who haven't got a bloody clue about it <laughs> um <laughs> even my, my, my weekend residentials on evolution mysticism you know and we do very deep practices for the whole day i've had to i've had to institute silence on the first day completely because they just want to sit around and have cups of tea and talk about themselves you know oh god we have to go in and meditate <laughs> they're different by the time they leave but yeah there, there is a huge resistance to doing this inner stuff you know that people like to talk and they like it which is fine it's a question of both but but once you've made that mystical connection that you're talking about with you and your, your beautiful people, um, it transforms your way of relating to, to the world and other people. Absolutely. You know, it's not about separating the two. It's about enriching that connection with whatever Absolutely. you're doing, your creativity, your relationships, your whole being gets changed by that inner connection with your own divinity, whatever you like to call it. I have to say I avoid the term God because it's far too God far too much patriarchal baggage you know. patriarchal baggage when you were talking about catholicism you know the catholic church has turned spirituality within the catholic church into an intellectual exercise my next door neighbor used to work for the catholic diocese in sydney she had quite a high job there and she has done every university degree that you can do but the catholicism has you do degree after degree after right. you know they're you university courses and it's all an intellect intellectual exercise all in the head. Yeah. it's all in the head when the boyfriend breaks up with her she's a mess and I'm like yeah. how are your degrees helping you in this moment you know they're just not no no mind you at that stage darling we really must also make the point however that um, connection with the light and you know and our yoga nidra experiences I think there has to be shadow work as well right Otherwise, so easy and we've seen it so much in the new age phenomenon right mm -hmm. ego sabotages the masculine connection and you get the phenomenon of spiritual narcissism of spiritual bypassing and yeah, you know, yeah. people really really serious and and collecting dark energies because you're awakening yourself up to connection with weird sort of stuff that if you haven't cleared your emotional or the worst of your emotional body you're in danger of ending up worse than you were Right. So I do think there should be a lot of perhaps more warning or understanding around all this. is why a tradition and a teacher in the early stages anyway of your mystical spiritual journey I think is important. Like I was very blessed to have Samuel came at the right time and, and gave me what I needed at the time, you know, and now I'm not dependent on that anymore. But but there, there is a time when you, you need, I think, that guidance. And um, yeah, so that become entirely Samuel yeah. was the Claire Vision School founder, Dr. Samuel Sagan. Yes, yeah, yeah. you met him in Australia in in the eighties. When he first uh, came to Australia, yeah, yeah, to found the School of Esoteric Studies in the Western tradition. Is he still on the planet? 
Uh, no, unfortunately not. He died two or three years ago. Right. He was ready to leave. He'd given a huge outlook of books, of tapes, of cassettes, etc. And also trained a lot of people in his, in his techniques, you know. And uh, the school is still thriving apparently in Sydney and over in America where he eventually ended up in America. Was he an Australian, was he? No, he was French. Oh, he was French. Multilingual. He could speak French. He was fluent in Sanskrit. He was just a genius, a complete genius. And uh, I adored him and he was a really special person. But I never wanted, it's funny about me, I never wanted to get drawn into being one of his teachers or, you know, uh-huh. um, I just avoided all that sort of training. Of course, he wanted me to be, but um, I, I guess part of it was emotional, darling, because I, I didn't want to fall at the feet of another male. You know, it, there wasn't, it was a bit, I mean, there were other critiques of the school saying it was very masculine dominated. In that. Right. You know, Interesting. Yeah. Which is unusual in a way because most spiritual organizations are full of women. But, you know, <laughs> men were attracted to Samuel because he, he had that really strong, authentic masculinity. Interesting. But I wasn't ready to throw myself at his feet or, or become his right-hand person or whatever, or one of his teachers, because I felt I was getting sucked into something and I wanted to find myself was more important. Um, he would not have argued. He would have said, well, that's what the teachings are do, helping you to do, my dear, you know, but... Um, Something in me resisted it, and I'm glad. I'm glad. Otherwise, I'd be a teacher of the Clare Vision School now, not where I am now. And I know where I am now is where I'm meant to be. Put it that way. Something when I, didn't. Feel when I was me. reading this in your bio this morning, or reading it in your story this morning, the Clare Vision School, because there are schools out there now called Clare Vision Schools, which are teaching the kids to actually see through their third eye in a, the most profound way. Have you seen this? Like they put their masks on and then they read from books and they play sports. And when I say kids, they're teaching everyone, but they're calling themselves the Clare Vision School because they're literally... You haven't heard of that, darling. You haven't heard of that? They're literally teaching people to see through their third eye with their physical eyes closed to the point where they can teach the blind to see. So the yeah, and and they're calling it the Clare Vision School. So I, when I saw that, I'm like, is this the same school? And I realised it's not the same school. Probably not the same. Yeah. Some used to make it clear that it's not about clairvoyance. It's not about being able to see ghosts or spirits or whatever, which you you, you probably can. But don't get that's the spiritual materialism. You don't get drawn into that. The aim of the, all the thing is to awaken your awareness of your mystical anatomy and connect with the self. Yes. Yes. One and of the students said, if you see the Buddha on the path, kill him, you know, all, all of that. If you yeah. see, say that again. If you see the Buddha on the path, kill him. Well, most have said that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a popular expression. If you, see the, you know, if you start to see, you know, the Buddha or just don't get, think that, don't inflate the ego with it is the best. <laughs> ego can be very easily inflated if you have a vision and you think, gosh, you're nearly there, you know. You'll be hoping <laughs> that bangs in no time. Come to me. <laughs> You know, one of the most <laughs> one of the most amazing people I've spoken to on the show because I've been doing the show for quite a while now, about almost twelve years. You're amazing, darling. You're amazing. Uh, uh, is and I'm trying to find her name. Oh my gosh, uh, I'll find her in a minute. But she speaks about this that you speak about the subtle anatomy, the mystical anatomy. You know, like I heard you talking on a TED talk, talking about we have to not only look at the physical world but the subtle world yeah. and and learn the the subtle anatomy and her work oh here she is desda zuckerman have you ever heard of desda zuckerman oh you have to see her work mm-hmm. it's amazing and she's really one of those mystics that's out there teaching people about a uh, healing and the subtle anatomy she's amazing beautiful 
but um, tell me what you know about about this about the mystical anatomy mm-hmm. but it's going to show it's mentioned Eckhart Tolle you know speaks what does he speak of the emotional body or the pain body the pain body well I just understand that east and west we have this model of, of uh, subtle bodies you know where we have yeah. the physical body and then you have the etheric body which is the body worked on by acupuncture and not to extent martial arts and yoga, the, the flow of life force through your body to get that balanced. And, and, and the, the etheric body then nurtures, the chi energy nurtures the physical body if it's, in, if it's flowing through all its necessary channels, you know, so that's a very important thing to be aware. I think yoga nidra works a lot on that etheric layer of life force energy. But then you have the astral body, which can, which is many different layers. You have the emotional, the intellectual, the emotional, and then you go into the higher astral, which is where you start to connect with the causal body, which is the body that reflects the divine. And, you know, my understanding then is that, you know, in our meditation practice, we are moving through these various layers, purifying them and finding our connection with the causal body, which is closest we can become really to to experiencing the infinite but light comes in then you feel this light this beautiful sense of light connection above you which you can then draw down into your heart and quicken the, the mystic heart because this is where all these historic traditions say is the essence of your being your divine being it's this substance of the etheric heart of the mystical heart the mystic heart i love that and the organ of this 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 amazing heart chakra which when it starts to open and awaken really becomes the, the center of your being, you know, and your being becomes much larger than your physical body. But you mentioned the third eye, which is very interesting because this was the primary technique of the Clairvision School is to find your meditation practice and this experience of your mystic heart by opening the inner gateway. This is the portal to the inner realms. We always understood this is why the Buddha has the jewel on the forehead and so on. And and it's just so sad that Western culture has closed it down for us, closes it down in our little ones through our education system and so on, because I'm sure it's lively as a child. And I guess mine was lively up until my university years when I closed it down quite deliberately, just close it down. It's not real, you know. Um, and yet it's just this amazing gateway that when you when you feel that and you can move inwards to a center in the center of the head, really, you 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 know, express this as clearly as I can, darling. But what I've come to love through that awakening of just a modest awakening, I think the ending, the awakening of the third eye is obviously not a, a yes or no. It's not such a switch. It's a ch- t- tunnel to start going through through the head and out the back. But it's a, it's a gradual process, you know, just as the heart awakening is a gradual process. It's an infinite thing. The heart has an infinite capacity for love. We don't just suddenly you know, there it is, and that's it. It's not like that at all. It's an ocean of love that opens up to you. So what what I've loved in that, the most beautiful experience, well, no, that's not true, but one of the lovely experiences now for me is the sense of that central channel, the sushumna. It goes down into the center of the earth. It's like a core of light and coming up through the perineum and up through the center of the body in front of the spine and out through the top of the head and up into the light. And, you know, when you get emotionally upset or you feel you're losing, losing it or whatever, just go back to that central channel. It's probably easier than going into the heart. It's such a stabilizing thing to feel that you, you're centered in that axis of light, connects you below and above. And, of course, the, and of course the, the, um, the junction of the third eye and that central channel is a special point in the middle of the head. And then you connect with that, go down to the heart and, and, and bring awaken this 
yeah, this extraordinary organ of the heart, which I think is our next stage in evolution. We have to come out of the head. The head has to stop being in control of the, the rational mind and, and it has to be the servant of the heart intelligence. And that heart intelligence is connected to source, connected to oneness. It's when you begin to live in oneness and live in love. It's when you start to stabilize the heart energy. Does that make sense? That's my understanding out of the whole. Oh, so beautiful. So beautiful. Just, just so the blind. that people aren't exposed to that. You know, they don't understand. They're not learnt. They're, they have it all closed down. It's just, that's the greatest tragedy of our Western culture. I want to see it taught in every school. I say this constantly on the shows, but I want to see everything you're talking about taught in every school and every university. I want to see the subtle anatomy, the mysticism anatomy are taught. Uh, anyway, it will be one day. It will be one day. We well, have to see our way through. But but all I'm saying, we're not going to get to a one day unless more people, there isn't, aren't enough people on the planet who are creating an impetus towards a mystical renaissance, a mystical awakening. You don't yeah. think there's enough people on the planet, did you I say? don't think there are at the moment, but I think it's happening. I think it can happen. It would be enormously transforming. And I love Brian Swim in this. You know, the cosmologist Brian Swim? No. <laughs> Oh, gosh, he's another wonderful teacher. He's a scientist. He talked about the union of science and mysticism. Brian Swim. Is that S-W-I-M? S-W-I-M-M-E. Brian M-M-E. Okay. Yes. Brian yes. In my consciousness of catastrophe, I could devote a whole chapter to his teachings. He is, he's looking at this journey of, of evolution from the, from the emerging of the Big Bang, you know, the flaring forth of energy through 13.8 billion years ending up on our planet Earth with human species with the consciousness able to reflect on all of that, which is extraordinary. The consciousness which is able to embody the divine eros, the energy that brought it all forth. So that's what he's turning it into a mystical story, you know, which is just beautiful. And the point he makes in terms of the evolution on planet Earth is that uh, although various stages and big stages in the story, in the big story, the emergence of matter from light, the emergence of life from matter, one might say, on planet Earth, and then the emergence of human consciousness. But what he's saying is that the first unicellular organisms on planet Earth, the first intimations of a biosphere, which then took off across the planet, were just a few unicellular organisms who became multicellular organisms. Not all of them did, just a few of them did. And that set in motion the whole evolution of the biosphere on planet Earth. So if you like to translate that into us now, you know, just requires a few of us to make that connection with the mystic heart and the divine to somehow, you know, bring forth a whole new consciousness for humanity. I just like that little reminder. I think it's rather beautiful, don't you? You know, require everyone on the planet to suddenly have this. It just requires yeah. There's a few narratives going on about what's going to happen. You know, some people are saying that Earth is going to split. And for those that don't go into the evolutionary, you know, process into the new Earth, they'll remain in that third dimensional consciousness. And um, and then some people talk about critical mass, as you've spoken about. It only takes a, a small percentage of, of this to explode in the minds of humanity and it explodes across the planet. So I don't know. There's a few narratives around what's going to happen in our future i think what is beautiful with what i'm saying with brian swim is that it is connected to the cosmogenesis story 
you know what I mean? You know, this new globally uniting story as to where we've come from. You know, we're, we're made from stardust sort of stuff. You know, that realizing of the power of evolution and the evolutionary impulse. And as far as what's actually going to be happening, darling, I don't think we know. I think <laughs> we have to be enormously humble in our humanity. I because think we're we thought creating. we know everything. We thought we can control everything and control nature and blah, blah, we're totally in charge. That's been our great mistake. We're not. We have to flow in the current of the eternal Tao. We have to surrender to this greater intelligence and not think that our minds can figure out what on earth it's going to be like because I don't think we can. So, Gillian, do you think the greater intelligence also includes extra-dimensional beings who are overseeing this planet helping us? I think, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the other part of your mystic, waiting your mystical anatomy. You become much more aware of other realms and other beings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, we must not be, be careful not to get too transcendental in that, all of that. And, and remember that it really is about what we're doing here on Earth. Mm-hmm. What I think is wonderful in the in the mystical renaissance that I feel that we're experiencing is that we're bringing spirit back into matter. Mm. And we withdrew spirit from matter. That's our, That's why we can destroy the forests and have the consciousness yeah. and do the terrible things we're doing to what is utterly sacred, which is yeah. this this living Earth, this living universe, and change our story around all of that. Yes, I was listening to a guy speaking last night, talking about the extra dimensional perspective and how they can, you know, travel across across the cosmos at the speed of thought, that they said everything is God consciousness, that everything is consciousness, even the computer, even the chair you're sitting on the table, the light, you know, it's all alive. And when you can communicate with the consciousness of everything, like that's what you're saying, we can communicate with the trees and the earth, but we can also communicate with the coffee table <laughs> and the car. <laughs> you know about them being being aware that they're conscious, but this is the thing that, you know, in the, in the modernity we saw matter as being the sub basic substance of the universe and consciousness just an epiphenomenon that came up accidentally how stupid right. is that right. you know but now we're saying that consciousness is the prime substance and the matter is matter is an expression of that consciousness exactly and i'm yeah. saying that's many scientists and that's beautiful that really yeah. is, you know the new paradigm that has to because but it's hard because i mean i the analogy for you know when copernicus came out with this understanding that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe, right, back then. Uh, it must have been terribly difficult that the earth was a, was not, wasn't flat. Terribly difficult for people to get a handle on when they've been brought up with this completely different understanding. And I think it's terribly difficult for us to really feel into the reality of a living universe and a living planet because we've been conditioned to think it's all dead. Right. Even if we were religious, we were conditioned to think it was all dead. You know, that's what our traditional religion told us. Dominion. Uh, what does it say? Dominion over the earth and the dominion animals. Dominion over the earth, yeah. which is there for our use, and we've taken up that, and, and we have just regarded it as just, you know, matter. Yeah. Say, there's a lovely naturalist called David Abrams who, who talks to the, 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 the materials of his building, you know, because he's so in love with nature and everything that comes out of nature. As we were saying, you know. Yeah. yeah. Have you heard of Richard Bach? No. Oh, no. he wrote he wrote Bridge Across Forever and Jonathan Livingston Seagull and oh, of course I have heard of him. I know Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I'm not very good at remembering authors' names, but I remember, of course, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, he was the same. I had him on the show years ago. He was beautiful. He was saying that he'd speak. He just he was in love with his airplane. He's an ardent flyer, yeah. and to him they were like conscious beings. The yeah. planes, you know, they were his children, his babies, his 
family uh, un- until he crashed a light aircraft and he had a near-death experience. He said to me that he had a wall of books on near-death experiences. And then two weeks after I spoke to him, which was probably about eight years ago, he had his own near-death experience. And I've reached out to him since then and said, do you want to talk about it yet? And he's like, nope. one day before he leaves the planet i'll get him to talk about it but because so many people do now talk about their near-death experiences which is a lovely lovely aspect of the mystical renaissance people can now free and the the transforming nature of that experience you know is the transforming nature of mystical experience you don't have to die to have it you can have it in your meditation right that's exactly it you don't have to die to have the light they speak of the light yeah well Mm. fine you know sit every day and connect with the light um, and it will transform your life. It will. It will t- turn you into a different, different sense of being. Um, but when you were talking about yes, lo- loving everything, it reminded me of a Rumi quote where he says, you know, the mystic poet Rumi, um, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, be in love. <laughs> really, be in love with absolutely everything. The pillow you're lying on, the okay. <laughs> covering you. <laughs> we need to repeat that about a million times. Wherever you are. Whatever you're doing. Whatever you're doing, be in love. Be in other in love. words, you know, love is not a feeling towards another person or a need, when you speak of a need for love. Love is a state of consciousness. Absolutely. Love is a way of being. You know, love is a connection to the multiverse. <laughs> yes. Well, it's the connection to oneness. It's Everything. Oneness is love. Mm. So it's the next stage of human evolution is to step out of the ego, the contracting me, me, mine, the skin encapsulated ego is on what's talked about. Step out of that very contracting um, and, and consciousness that brings all about really all our pain and suffering mm. and see ourselves and feel ourselves to be this oneness, which is love. Mm. And then all this, you know, stuff falls away. Mm. But the snag there is that we're covered with layers, aren't we, of protectiveness, where we don't allow ourselves to feel that. It's our natural birthright, but we're, we're clouded, whatever veiled or whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use. It's so funny. That's where it's... Our, our spiritual work and our shadow work comes in to shed those things that hide the, the light. That, yeah. fear is a big one fear is a big one you're reading my thoughts i was thinking about this this morning before we got online i was thinking about people in their near-death experiences and how they describe love as a love that they haven't experienced in their humanness Uh, even when they got married or had children it's a love beyond that love and so having not had a near-death experience in that capacity i was thinking this morning have i ever touched that sort of love have I, t- like, have I experienced that on earth? It's a question I don't know the answer to because I don't know. I've only heard other people speak of that love. Have I met that love? I don't know. I think you'd know if you had, darling. And now if you want to share, I, I have a very, very powerful experience of it. Um, tell, which, tell us, please, please. Yeah. Is yearning. I haven't shared it. I don't share it, but I did write about it in the book. It mm. seemed appropriate. After I'd, I think it was after I'd been out in the desert and doing a lot of purification work and so on, and I came back. And I was sitting in, I hadn't got this temple at that time. I was sitting in my house in my bedroom where I used to meditate every morning. In a state of meditation, obviously, the room started to fill with an enormous amount of light. And I was used to experiencing that to some extent, but this was really full on. And I heard an angelic choir singing, and it was something about whatever you do to me, you do to, to all my 
people or something like that quote from Christ, which I had to look up the following day. Anyhow, that aside, all that was happening and my root chakra was vibrating and my whole body of energy was vibrating and my crown chakra was throbbing. And um, I felt this descent, tangible descent of all I can say is the most exquisite quality of love. It was just pure love that I never even could, couldn't describe it. Just came down, came down, touched my heart, quickened my heart, and, and then enveloped my whole body. And I could do, all I could do was cry. All I could do was sit there and weep at how I could have had any doubts about Christ, any doubts about you know, spirituality or anything, because it was so bloody real. And it stayed with me for a while, and then, of course, it lifted. Then the next day, the day after, I think for three or four days after, I had similar experiences of this descent of love, which seemed to permeate every cell in my body. And then, of course, I started to um, read the mystics and, and what, you know, what this experience was. And a hymn from my childhood came to me, which uh, was, I thought was lovely, where, one that I loved as a child, which said, Spirit of my God descending, fill our hearts with heavenly joy. Love with every passion blended, pleasure that can never cloy. Thus provided, pardon guided, nothing can my peace destroy or something like that. But it was this, you know, and, the descent, and in the Bible, it's, it's the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a descent, a descent of love. But then the mystics talk about the heart and the heart being the source of, 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 um, of love and so on. But to me, it's been an experience of that heart awakening happening because of the light coming down into it. But, but what you're saying earlier, darling, is beautiful. And I haven't had the same exquisite experience of love to the same extent, but I know it's left a perfume in me. You know, it's perfume. Oh, I love that. So yeah. how do you, because with many people I've spoken to on the show that have had that same experience, you know, from an NDE or a spiritual transformative experience, it's, it's, a, it's a moment and it's not a lifetime. It, and then they try and evoke that or how do you practice that in your life you know in your daily life every moment every I, mean, I think in, in many strange mysterious ways it's a gift of grace mm. but i think you know it's as sri ramana sri ramana hashi or whatever not ramana hashi sri ramana hashi whatever lovely mm. quote from him where he said the winds of grace are blowing everywhere now but mm -hmm. you have to raise your sails to catch them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know there is a sense in which we need to 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 have our spiritual practice, whatever that may be, in order to become receptive to and open to that sort of experience of grace, which I'm sure is happening more and more across the planet. But to return to what you were saying about love, I love that because the quality of this love as I experienced is as, as different as a caterpillar is from a butterfly, mm. you know, from what we usually call love to what we're obviously capable mm. of feeling and, mm. and being, because we can become that love. Right. It's an information of what we can become is that yeah. love. That is the love that is the fabric of the cosmos. It's the fabric yeah. of creation. It's there for us. If we could just, you know, and I, have, and I had done a lot of purification work, it's true, and I was meditating and I'd been meditating through the third eye, et cetera, et cetera. But I still think it was some sort of, some sort of grace event. Mm. You know? um, a remembrance, a, a remembrance. Like you say, we can become it, but I think we are it. We just don't remember that we are it. It's like we're, like you say, we're covered in layers of, Doubt. Is. Mm. I don't know. Again, it comes down to just that humility to say, I really don't know. It was an experience and um and it's given me insight and wisdom into 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 what you know what evolution's about in a way that that we can 
yes, we can somehow, uh, it's like that lovely quote from, from Teilhard de Chardin. Have you heard of him? What a great evolutionary pioneer. Oh, so, What's his uh, name, say? Teilhard de Chardin. French paleontologist, lived in the middle of the 20th century. But he was a Roman Catholic priest as well, and wow. a scientist, and a mystic. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the lovely things he said at that time was, humankind at this point in history uh, has to turn to either worship or suicide. Wow. On the edge of either worship or suicide, which is a famous quote from him. Um but I don't know what I was going to quote from him a moment ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Well, what, well, as I was having this thought this morning, standing at the sink, making a cup of tea or whatever, I was thinking, have I ever felt that love that they speak about? Uh, I might not have ever felt it, but I've definitely practiced being love. Like when I say practice, let yeah. go, um, not practice, but let go of all that it all that interrupted the love that I am, like let go of the unworthiness, the I'm not good enough, the I'm alone story, you know, all the stories. Yes. And as you let go of the stories, love tends to just permeate your whole being and you can feel that love for anyone and everyone. Like I just fall in love. People say to me, who's the favourite person you've had on the show? And I said, the last one, because I fall in love with them. <laughs> I just know I love that. What you, you said to me this morning was that I'm totally in love with you and I could so identify with that because that's, <laughs> that's a special feeling. That's a special feeling. And I think it is true, as we were trying to say, in whatever you're doing, wherever you are, be in love, because that, it is true that that feeling of being in love with someone does give you an intimation of that exquisite divine love. It really does. And there's a lovely Buddhist practice, isn't there, which is beautiful where you meditate and you meditate on some being whom you love it could be a pet rabbit or you know your cat or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. Feel that love in your heart center and then you then you visualize someone you're really not getting on with at the moment happy months problem and you feel like the same love for them you know and then you spread it out to the whole world and it's a beautiful practice and it i'm sure it's giving you a taste but that that love i've described earlier is even it's a, it's a vibration or two above even that you know and i'm sure yes. that it's limitless the way it can it can be I'm so sure. amazing so amazing mm. but it's so comforting to think that that love is there and it is the fabric of the cosmos mm. and it just requires us to as you say step out of all those layers of poor me and you know and blah 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 yeah. and and, and feel, allow yourself to feel it yeah 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 allow it to be there as I was thinking this thought this morning it's funny I never thought we'd talk about this but it was just there before we came online I was thinking let me think if I can think of a time where I felt close to that love and it was when I was reading the book's conversation with God there was some uh, messages in the books that had me completely remember who I am and why I'm here and I had this complete like breakdown of bawling bawling not from sadness but from but from remembering like I can't I don't even know how to explain it but it was that was an a sensational feeling that I've never felt before and that was from reading a book uh so I guess we can have spiritual experiences oh absolutely or walking in the park or suddenly seeing yeah. oh, can't walk on the beach absolutely can these moments are there for us if we if if we you know if we're open if we're receptive if we're yeah receptive. if we're receptive exactly never have a quote from William Blake I'm very strong on quotes aren't I really? <laughs> you're doing well my book is full of them William Blake when he said we are put on put on earth a little space to learn to bear the beam of love and that resonated with we're me. put on earth a little space to learn to learn bear. to bear the beam of love oh. because it can be so intense you know it can burn you 
up. I mean, the mystics talk about it. It can be painful. It can. Uh, there's a Llewellyn, the mystic Llewellyn Vaughan Lee, the Sufi mystic. He's a lovely, lovely guy, Llewellyn Vaughan Lee. Tune into him on YouTube. Anyway, um, he speaks of some of his some of his students or disciples going off and having MRI scans because they get such pain in the center of their chest when they start to feel this quickening of the heart chakra. Oh wow! Yeah. A yeah. That happens. It can be mistaken for a heart. I, I feel like the pain is the resistance to the love that's trying yes. to burst through and then you're holding it back. Exactly. exactly. Uh, I remember this, I had, I showcased a Tantra teacher in Sydney a few years back and she had these um, videos of her using sexual energy to move energy through the body without touching the body, mind you. They were the most extraordinary videos, but she showed a video of a man having this therapy and he was experiencing pleasure until he hit his heart chakra, right? Uh, energy hit his heart chakra you should have seen his body Jillian he's contorted and he he was like he looked like oh he looked like someone with cerebral palsy and he was hitting his resistance to allowing love as the energy hit his chakra and his body was just distorting and he was screaming in pain and all the men in the audience were like ah they were freaking out because we saw one with a woman who was experiencing ecstasy and then the poor man was experiencing this pain yeah and then once there was something when he started to cry that's right when he started to cry that released whatever resistance and his body completely relaxed Ah. and then the energy moved through his body like darling that's beautiful Kundalini energy we'll talk about that because that's another aspect we've got the descending energy we've got the ascending clearly awakening in our in our you know human race or whatever at the moment a lot of people having but again if your body's not prepared for it or purified it can be enormously destabilizing it can be horrendous people just can't cope with life you know yeah Um, i'm thinking you know know it's all about and don't have the teachings to to understand what's happening to them yeah that's why we need to teach this stuff in every school it needs to be be one number one practice understanding our not just our physical anatomy but our subtle anatomies and like you say the shashumna kundalini like we need to get this you know like we anyway absolutely spirit one day but uh how did you meet all the young ones from yes and festival how did you get involved in that oh well i had this gorgeous young man come to one of my weekends actually the first thing was he'd heard me being interviewed about my book on the spirit of things in rachel Khan, and uh, he rang me up i think and we talked about my book and he's a science studying science at university he's also an artist a very talented young man all he was all about 23 i think when he contacted me is that dan no, no, it's a guy called Will Swan, who was also talking about evolution of consciousness on that weekend. He, had, oh, he gave okay. a Swan. And um, he came up to one of my weekends, of course, with all these much older women. <laughs> I remember picking him up at the station and we just fell into each other's arms like this lovely connection. It's like meeting one of my grandchildren, really, you know, or yeah, yeah. sons or something. And um, we got on famously and, and we remained in touch. And he's one of the yes and uh, people. Yes. He let them know about me and then they, I don't know, they caught up with me or read my book or something and they invited me on, not this, just this year, but the year before or the year before that, I can't remember. Oh, nice. And I've been a bit slack. I haven't been to all the follow-up things, but I think they're a lovely bunch of people. I was really impressed with them. Yeah. They really are caring about the, the planet and so on. 
Absolutely. There's such passion in the younger generation for this evolutionary, you know, move forward. Yeah, but I want to love. what you said about crying because I thought that was that brought to up for, in me the importance of the, the way that grief can awaken the heart. We talk yes. about the awakening of the heart. Mm. And that was a lovely story you gave of the guy who hit the heart and then had to grieve and cry and so on. And, and, and strangely enough, I think, you know, COVID and climate change and so on, uh, hopefully bringing more of humanity into a state of deep grieving. Mm. It's through that state of deep grieving that they will touch the energy of the heart. Have you heard of Joanna Macy? Joanna Macy's eco-spirituality, our oh, beautiful woman, um, formerly Buddhist, but she doesn't call herself like me. She's a universal mystic, but also a scientist and, and an eco-spirit. She'd call herself an eco-spirituality, whatever the word is would be for that. Joanna Macy. Joanna Macy. Joanna and Macy. She speaks of when the heart breaks open, your heart can contain the whole world. Mm. She's got a lovely new book. I think it's called Coming to Life Again, where she's full of ritual practices to do with, with friends, with community to awaken grief, to feel into the grief of the earth, to listen to the cry of the earth and how that can open and awaken and lift your, your consciousness. Because it's a curious paradox, the deeper you go into grief, the more you can feel love and the more you can feel joy. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I've got a book series called the Awakening Soul book series. And in the first book, it's called Awakened by Death. And one of the authors is a mother whose five-year-old was shot in one of those American school shootings, you know, the uh, Sandy Hook. And yeah. she said her spiritual awakening yeah. was the grief. She said yeah. that her biggest fear had been realised. Yeah. And when she realised that she had, her biggest fear had been realised, she realised she had actually no more fear anymore. And that was a a spiritual awakening for her and then she looked at her life and she saw how fear had run every thought every thought you know you put on makeup because you are you good enough you are you going to get early got to get the kids in time for school am I feeding them the right thing like every thought there was this underlying bedrock of fear and um, as she experienced her biggest fear and in that deepest grief she had this, she was like brought to the light. And then she started a movement and now she's teaching consciousness in schools across the world. She's amazing. What's she's amazing. her name? Oh my God, I've gone blank. Me and her name is, oh, I'll find it. You did her as well, did you? She's one of the authors in my book and I've had her on the show a couple of times. I know her. I'm sorry about my ignorance, darling. You've written a book too. Oh, I've got a book series where I showcase people's stories in the book series. Oh, right. How yeah. wonderful. What beautiful work you've been doing, darling. My, my bow to you. Absolutely oh, beautiful. You. Really lovely. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm really, really, really privileged. Um, but what I was going to say about, about grief, oh, there's a lovely story there. I heard one of the teachers speaking of this woman. I think it was in Africa. It was bio. I don't know if you know him, but anyhow. He was talking about a woman in Africa who was always full of joy, always full of love and delight and joy. Someone asked, how can you just be cheerful all the time? So many terrible things happening. She said, I've learned to grieve deeply. Wow. I've learned to grieve deeply. But also there's a lovely quote from Joseph Campbell I like to share, which is um, that it's possible to um, participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. It's so interesting that you say that. We were talking about that on another show the other day and somebody Oh, yeah, there's another show called, um, I'll introduce you to them, the Cat, Catman and Linda Coulterberge have a show called Third Eye Salon. 
and I'll introduce you to them. Yeah, and they and they interviewed me the other day, and uh, and um, and Linda was quoting Joseph Campbell and learn to participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. That was the quote she was saying. It was so yeah, yeah, which comes from heart awakening, you know, because you have that inner well of joy then that can sustain you no matter what's going on in the outside world. doesn't mean you don't care about it, you grieve deeply, that's part of being human. But you have that sort of, yes, it's a paradox really, but the joy, because I mean, the, the esoteric traditions again tell us that the essence of the divine is joy. Yeah. So they don't yeah. speak about its joy, which is, I suppose, you know, just the quality of that love that we were talking about earlier. It's nice to have our bubbles interacting, isn't it? You're in a sort of spiritual bubble and I'm in a spiritual bubble. We're exchanging, we're exchanging bubble news or bubble people. <laughs> bubble mystics. Bubble news. I love it. I am in a bubble, but like that's just life, isn't it? Once you, once you well and truly dive into this work, you just attract. You just, you just brings you yeah. people that are doing the same thing. And yeah. and uh, I, I speak to so many people in the states with my groups that say, uh, you know, they join my groups because they feel so alone in their in their consciousness expanding journey or their spiritual journey or spiritual awakening. Yes. yes but yes. as you, as you start to really marinate in this work, you just, it just attracts all these people into your life. Yeah. I love that marinate. That's a nice word. That's <laughs> well, I have um, to say everyone has to read Julian's books. Hmm? They need that. They need, you need that nurturing. You need to have people around you. It's right in the early stages of your spiritual journey, mystical journey to have people who are like-minded and so on. And often your family isn't. Your family can be incredible pull back to, you know, normal sort of you know, stuff that isn't, it isn't inspiring you anymore. <laughs> Talking about real estate and food or whatever. I finally found her name. The lady that had the profound awakening through grief was Scarlett Lewis, Nurturing Healing Love. Oh. Yeah, her five-year-old left a message on the chalkboard before he went to school that day saying nurturing, healing, love in a five-year-old's writing and then he was shot during the Sandy Hook and um, she was in communication with him after life and and she, she said that when she had this profound spiritual awakening through the grief process, she was in a state of grace for about for about eight months where there was no fear present in her mind at all. And she said during that time, that's when she mobilized and she got into like creating a movement. At the funeral, she thought about the shooter and she thought he was just a kid that was never taught to overcome his stressful thoughts. If we teach children how to overcome their stressful thoughts, won't we change the world? And that's when she started the movement. And now she has these consciousness, mindful practices that she has put into all these schools she makes it a free download for schools to utilize and it's very science-based so that the schools can get a handle on it it's not too woo-woo but she's teaching this you know she's putting this into schools and it's well there's a lot of that happening i think in america now into schools as it is here Mm. in primary school anyway but then when they could get to secondary school it's all this emphasis on hsc i'm getting a bit of paper so you can get a job money to buy stuff you know (laughs) yeah exactly uh, but that's absolutely gorgeous. Well, I wonder if, if uh, Rick on Photo at the Gas Pump has interviewed her. I'll, I'll check that out. And he probably it. has. She's pretty well known, I have to say. She's um, she's pretty yeah. out there. She's what a, what an unbelievable what a, it's. You know, I mean, when you look at the suffering in the world every day, and if you look at SBS New World News or whatever, 
and you see the refugees and you see the war zone areas and, and this incredible suffering that people are going through. It's just, you know, it's hard to run. We're so privileged. We're just so blessed. It's yeah. hard to feel we, the that, that can be. We definitely live in the lucky country, don't we? We're definitely. But we're going to be challenged too. We've already seen the bushfires and the floods and, you know, the, the world is going to be, be different from COVID, of course. And, but it's also interesting to see how it does change people's lives. Yes. Their, their values have changed. Powerful. And they appreciate that they're still alive. And Absolutely. So, you know, there's some strange, mysterious, you know, plan around it all. We have to believe that that it's it's okay. If you're going to... I, I just wanted to share with you, um, I like to speak of us being in butterfly time. Yeah. Crystal. Share, yes, share please. By that. Butterfly time, it is a, a popular metaphor now among us spiritual journal, journal, spiritual pilgrims or whatever we call ourselves, where, you know, the the uh, the caterpillar in the chrysalis attempts, his, the immune system of the caterpillar attempts to destroy what are called the imaginal cells of the butterfly to begin with. Strong, it keeps destroying. Just as, you know, we, we murdered Christ and we murdered Lucifer, Martin Luther King was assassinated, Kennedy was assassinated, sages have been destroyed. You know, we've killed off all these martyrs and all these wisdom people through through our um, our Western experience. Uh, so the that's the caterpillar consciousness, killing off those who are attempting to move into a different level of being. Finally, enough of the imaginal cells are there to begin to bring into being the butterfly, which of course finally emerges. The caterpillar gives up and the butterfly lives off the mush of the caterpillar. <laughs> so it's a lovely, lovely way of seeing our emergence at this time, the possibility that we're in that chrysalis, late chrysalis stage and that we're about to birth into the butterfly. So that's a lovely image. But then the other butterfly image that I like too is from science, which science physics understands that when a system is in phase transition, between either collapsing or moving into a higher, more complex state. It said it's in a phase transition and the slightest input of energy can determine whether it, it moves to a greater complexity or completely collapses down. And that another, and it's called in chaos theory, the butterfly effect. The fact that the butterfly's wings fluttering in South America can affect the weather in China. That's what they sort of say anyway, you know, this, because of this tiny input can have repercussions and blah, 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 and affect the big picture. And that's another way of looking at where we're at at the moment in our sense of calling to sacred activism. That we each have a gift to bring to this current crisis. We're each born with this gift that the world is waiting for, unique gift, which we feel when we're connected to our source. This is where sacred activism comes in. And that we're being called to, to not under, underestimate what we're capable of doing, just like that butterfly's wing, you know, just a smile in the street. My tiny things can affect the outcome of the whole. So that's another butterfly effect, which I think is lovely. So butterflies, butterflies, Beautiful. butterfly time. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So everyone listening, watching this, just think of yourself as a butterfly as you flap your wings. Merging butterfly. Merging yeah. butterfly, making a difference across Something the world. Fluttering of your wings can have an incredible impact beyond your possible possible imaginings. Because well, we're in transition. We're unstable, you know? Yeah, we are, we are we are. We're in the mush. We're in the we're in the chrysalis in the mush at the moment, aren't we? We are a bit. Yes, yes. The imaginal cells are struggling, but they're getting there. Yeah, yeah. We're imaginal cells in the mush. <laughs> I don't know if that's a pleasing image or not, but anyway. 
here's a quote for you. I posted this on my timeline the other day from a gorgeous young spiritual teacher. He's an American. He's, uh, I think he's just turned 30. He says, the mind becomes quiet only once it sees that divine will is happening everywhere. Yes. I loved that. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Say that again. The mind becomes quiet only once it sees that divine will is happening everywhere. Oh, yes. That's that transition from mind to heart, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Aaron, yes. Aaron. I love that. Mantras is not my will, but thy will be done. Not my right. will, but thy will be done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so when we see the chaos in the world, we think, oh, it's terrible. But, you know, can we entertain that it's actually divine will? It's like there's actually all divine will. It's all, all divine. All the Tao some way or other. Yeah. And, yeah. and we have to have the humility to realise that right. we can follow our hearts, follow what I have the expression feels right, do what feels right from that, that heart centre. Don't listen to the rational mind. It hasn't got a clue most of the time. <laughs> it has its place. I was listening to an Alaskan elder the other morning talking about his indigenous tradition and, of course, how they're struggling up there to, to preserve the, the wisdom of their, their elders and their tradition. And um, he was saying, you know, our people, we always just understood what it was to be in the, in the here and now and in the heart. We can't understand you people. We call you the reverse culture because you're all in your head and so you don't know about the heart. And they know that the head is just the servant of the heart. And spoke all the time about this heart energy and their children were le learnt that and in their upbringing they learnt to tune into their hearts and so on I thought, oh god how amazing that's true we've just lost it you know yeah. a reverse culture isn't that interesting i love that the reverse culture there's a quote from ram das on that i'm sure you've heard of ram das this mm. guru. and he said um, that the intellect is the power tool of our separation to replace intellect with our rational mind. Our intellect is the power tool of our separation. The, the awakened heart is the gateway to our unity. The awakened heart is the gateway to our unity. The only oh. way we can really connect with oneness and then just see everything as one. Absolutely. Contractions just fall away. Well, darling one, you're an absolutely exquisite speaker. I so enjoyed listening to your TED talk and, and reading your website and watching your um, videos. And I look forward to your talk at the Higher Self Expo. And I'm, um, I would imagine having not read your books, <laughs> unlike Rick, who you said that read the book and all he wanted to talk about was the book. I haven't read the book. I imagine they would be an absolutely sublime read because you're such an amazing writer. You just have the... Week, darling. You have a command of the English language, so you know. Well, my academic years were not a waste of time entirely. Someone <laughs> told me it was very useful. They gave me that doctor too, which gives me, you know, prestige in mainstream culture. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? We love a bit of a doctor, don't we? A doctor in something. Otherwise, you're just some strange Sheila from Nimbin, you know, <laughs> possibly on drugs. A strange Sheila. We're going to listen to her. <laughs> I know, we put a doctor in front of her and then we'll listen. Oh, sit up and listen yeah, to the doctor. She's got the right bit of paper, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Gillian, thank you so much. Can I, can I end with a quote from another wonderful evolutionary spiritual, spirituality master, Sri Aurobindo. You've heard of Sri Aurobindo? From yeah. Aurobindo. And in his epic poem, Savriti, I love this particular verse because it's what we were talking about earlier about bringing spirit back into matter by feeling the living universe. And he's envisaging there what might be. And he says, then earth will become the home of heaven's light. It's 
not beautiful for a start? Earth will become the home of heaven's light. Nature's base and spirit's tops will draw near the secret of their separate truths and know each other as one deity. And spirit will look out through matter's gaze, and matter will reveal spirit's face. Mm. How about that? Matter will reveal spirit's face. In other words, we will see the divine. In every talk to the trees and what we're talking about earlier, Dan. Yeah, we'll see the divine in the car, in the computer, in the oh, aeroplane. Yes, because it's oneness. Tree, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the move so that's the tantric tradition, of course, too. You know, tantric yoga, the, the rising of Kundalini, the, the imminent, the, the, the earth energy coming up and uniting with the transcendent, and then they marry in the heart. Yeah. The tantrism. Well, thank you so much for all that you do in this world. You're a, oh, you're a force. You're very a f- little, darling. Very little compared. No. <laughs> no. You're a force. I'll get you on some more shows. I introduce you to some more podcasters. Oh, that would be lovely, darling. <laughs> very happy to sit here in the comfort of my temple and talk. I know. Easy. <laughs> That's being on the front line, is it? <laughs> we might even get you down to Sydney one day. You can talk to the tribe down here if you want to come. You live in Sydney? Hmm. I live in Sydney. Well, I do have family in Sydney. I occasionally make the journey down there. Mm. I just love to sit and have a cup of tea with you somewhere. <laughs> Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you, darling, for having me. Thank you very much. Don't you love my dark Madonna behind here? I do. Yeah. Our time, the dark Madonna, absolutely. Simple. Isn't Gillian just so delightful? Oh, I loved meeting her. That was the first time I'd met her, actually. In person, even though we're not in person, we're on on Zoom. Yeah, I knew that she'd be a lot of fun. I love that she was so irreverent about the whole doctor thing. (laughs) That's hilarious. Uh, We make people that have doctorates and have doctors and letters after their name or before their name so important. And yet most of the people I speak with on the show have such amazing stories to share and they don't have a degree in anything. Oh, yeah, I think we need to listen to each other's stories you know, as well as the learned people of university degrees. Beautiful. Anyway, she's delightful. I think I'm going to go up to where she lives and hang out with her one day, hopefully one day soon. Sorry, I just had a bit of brekkie before I did this part of the show. Ah, yes. I'm not going to talk too much more. Remember to tune in to the Higher Self Expo and hear all the amazing speakers. I've been uh, instrumental in finding Australian speakers that can bridge the world of spirituality and science actually to me and I'm one of the speakers there is no separation they are one subject and I think that science is discovering what spirituality has always known and uh, as we look more deeply into the way things work we understand that it works the way the gurus have been saying it's worked for thousands of years Um, yeah so it's interesting, yeah. As I said, as I said to Gillian, I was listening to a man speak last night about the way that um, consciousness works with uh, the way that ETs propel their ships, and that they understand that it's all one energy, and you can communicate. It's all conscious. Everything is conscious, and um, yeah, you have this intimate communication with the vehicle that you're driving. Oh, anyway, it's such an exciting time. It's such an exciting, I can't wait until we discover more, discover more. 
Well, thanks again for watching and listening and remember to like and subscribe and share the shows with your friends and all that good stuff. And yeah, sign up for the newsletter and go and sign up for the High Self Expo and all that. And if you want to join us in the Inner Sanctum, as I said last time, Aaron Abke, one of the people I quoted on the show today, will be joining us this month as our guest teacher and I'm online teaching every week for my shows. I've had quite a few people that are coming into their channeling experiences. Some are already completely tapped in in the inner sanctum. Some are just discovering it. Some are amazing healers, but they don't know it yet because they've got thoughts in, in the way thinking, I can't do that. I can't do that. Once you get rid of those thoughts, you realize not only can I do all this stuff, I've been doing it, I've been teaching it for lifetimes. But it's an interesting crew in, in, in the Inner Sanctum. There's a variety of different people with different ideas about themselves. But we're all into all these things that I talk about on the show and we discuss it and share ideas and share teachers and share recordings with each other. And it's great. I love it. I love my tribe, my little team in the Inner Sanctum. So if you want to join us, please do. And remember to check out the book, Awakened by Death. Love you big time. <laughs> See you again soon. Bye for now.